0: welcome to an original series the podcast celebrating our favorite tv shows behind the paywall i'm patch one of your co-hosts and with me As always, celebrating the world of long form storytelling is my friend, Adam. Hey man, how's it going? It's good. I am excited (laughs) about covering this episode. And let me just say this, I realized before we got on that I am equally as excited about watching the next episode right after we finish recording as i am about talking about the current episode so yeah
1: yeah yeah me too yeah
0: you know if you little inside baseball we were having some internet issues and there was part of me that was like please let us record tonight because i absolutely want to watch episode seven after this
1: <laughs> i know and not yeah we can't delay because then we have to re-watch this episode again just so we, we stay in the right oh yeah. right frame of mind can't do that
0: no, no, let's not do that. Let's let's push through, get through the technical difficulties, make it happen. Yes. Because Patch needs a little more Stranger Things in his life, which I didn't know that I would be saying
1: this. And it's going to be even harder <laughs> when you're done with the next episode, which is the penultimate episode, oh, no. to be able to refrain from just going right into the season finale so okay. I, mean, I, I will, the taste I will warn you it's going to be hard i there think
0: you you're doing more than warning you're just putting the carrot in front of me and saying
1: <laughs> you want this don't you
0: <laughs> let's hope i can i, I have to because I, I can't, yeah i can't keep things separate i can't keep two episodes separate so <laughs> yeah. i'll just have to endure but again that's the love of this podcast this is what we're really trying to to hope for and or what we're really trying to achieve so yeah All right, well, let's get right into it. We'll start, as always, with the opener. Uh, This is um, one of those that starts where the previous episode leaves off, which I thought was pretty interesting. I want to say episodes two to three, whichever episode had Barb in the Upside Down, I think that was another one that started where the previous one ended. But this one really felt very straightforward, like really kind of connected. Because what we left the tree, and now we're back to the tree with Jonathan and Nancy and lots of yelling. I thought one of the interesting things about this opening scene, Adam was we really get a glimpse of the upside down. Like this is the first time that we're inside it for more than just, well, really for the first time period. Like we got into it for maybe 15 to 20 seconds of the last episode. And now we're in it for almost a full minute. And we really get to see kind of the reversal of things. I mean, and I love the fact that the spores, are in there because it does allow us to be able to differentiate especially when something like the woods is being shown off yeah but being able to um see that i thought was pretty cool and then the audio was was interesting there's echoes so you can actually what we find out is that you can actually call through the upside down i guess that there's an opening
1: yeah i guess if you're in close enough proximity to an opening there's some ability to to hear Mm -hmm. between the two yeah
0: Yeah. And so then we get uh, we get Jonathan uh, getting to pull out, you know, pull Nancy out of the tree, uh, which is a nice little jump scare of her arm just kind of popping through. And then what I don't understand, and this is maybe just my logical brain kicking in is how does the monster not hear all that ruckus? Like when she's, you know, if it hears the snapping of a twig when she steps on it, how does it not see her or hear her kind of crawling back through the uh, the tree? I don't know, but it made for a great opening. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. It makes you wonder, does it even have any eyes? Does it have normal vision or is it all based on other senses such as audio and, and feel, you know, you know touch? I know it's, yeah, it's interesting. Based on what we've seen so far, it clearly has taste because it has mm-hmm. lots of teeth yeah, and tongues or, or a tongue and, uh, and eats, <laughs> uh, likes deer meat.
0: Likes deer meat. Yeah. Very yeah. much a rugged, uh, you know, a a rustic kind of monster, yeah, you know, not, <laughs> and
1: likes, it's uh, likes the organics. <laughs> and it's only—it's always dark in the upside down, as far as we know. So, is there no sunlight there? Is it, yeah. is it a true reversal where there's like it's a eternally nighttime?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I want to—I want to talk a little bit about that. So, the upside down is not a reversal. I think the last episode really kind of gave us insight that it's not—it's an echo. If we're talking about comparing it to the veil of shadows and so the way the writing is is done it is a reversal of sorts it's an echo or an or a mirror image but i don't think it's an opposite because a mirror image is not necessarily the opposite like if you look in a mirror you can see your reflection but it's not dark like it's not light outside or my skin's you know i'm light-skinned now i'm not dark-skinned in in the reflection so i think it's more like that where it's it is a reflection of our world with dark sinister types of things and so um this episode does a really good job at helping kind of explain the monster a little bit more. It provides some properties that I don't think we were able to really latch onto to until the conversation with Nancy and Jonathan in her bedroom the next morning after they you know get back to the house. I wanted to talk a little bit about the progression after the um opening credits. We get Steve Harrington in the car with his what I would call his douchey friends and (laughs) he he wants to go see what's going on and love, love Steve. Let me, let me rephrase that. I love Steve at this point because I think he's being a very good boyfriend. I think he's being very caring, gets to her house. And of course he sees her and Jonathan on the bed. Jonathan's comforting her, I think with a blanket of some kind. And then he makes that face that I'm like, Oh gosh, something's going to go wrong. And of course something does go wrong. I thought it was very fitting that sunglasses at night by Corey Hart was playing. Yeah. Um, I actually pulled out a couple of lyrics that I thought were fitting while she's deceiving me. She cuts my security. She got control of me. And then don't go. trust the blades with the guy in shades. Oh no. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a, that's a very fitting song for this. I thought it was pretty perfect. Yeah. And that really kind of sets the ball rolling for what we're going to see later, the confrontation with, uh, with him and Jonathan.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting scene, too, because Nancy doesn't want to be alone after being transported to a parallel dimension. I can understand seeing a huge creature, monster, and uh, she's invited Jonathan to sleep over. Uh, He actually finds, I think, an old sleeping bag of hers in the closet and lays it out and decides that he's just going to sleep on the floor. But Nancy, of course, invites him next to her on the bed and uh they don't really fall asleep they they're they're having a lot of difficulty and that and it kind of reminded me it it seemed like this whole scene was a little bit of a subtle nod to the original nightmare on elm street where they're trying to like not go yeah. to sleep you know because yeah. if they go to sleep bad things will happen and jonathan says it can't get us in here and nancy says you don't know that yeah. and it's <laughs> well, a very good it's... point you don't know yeah. that we, yeah. they don't know anything at this point i mean they can kind of see that And based on the research that they were doing in the previous episode with the map, they had kind of determined that it doesn't seem to be hunting or leaving its domain for very far. Like it's not traveling very far, not more than maybe a square mile from where Steve Harrington's house was and where Jonathan went missing in Mirkwood. So maybe that makes sense that they're safe in uh, Nancy's house. but. Yeah, they don't really know. They don't know if there's more of these things. They don't know mm-hmm. if there's other gates, if there's other openings. They have really very little information at this point.
0: Well, it's going to freak anybody out when they see this monster up close. It kind of, like, all bets are off. And yeah. I think <laughs> that night was very fitting, everything that happened, up to in including Jonathan having his gun with him in the sleeping bag. <laughs> right. And then Nancy saying, can you just come up here? And he comes up with comes up there and lays with her, again, with his gun. And I'm like, that's not rational. That's not safe, but I get why you're doing it. Hopefully the safety's on. I'm going to assume that it is. But this moment, Adam, I think is really cool because it shows how panicked they are. The fact that Jonathan says it can't get us here. And she's like, how do you know that? And I'm the same way. I'm with her, obviously, you know, being the omniscient spectator that I am. The fact is what rules have been put in place that tell us that this monster can't get them. Right. Except for what they've really sussed out previously with the, the whole map thing. Right. What I do like is the next day when they are getting ready to leave, she really starts putting together some of these important pieces beyond just you know where it's actually living, what the proximity is, the fact that it's a predator. It hunts at night. It hunts alone. Um, it's drawn out with blood. Again, some of these are assumptions that they're making. But the fact is, I mean, now we get more information. And when it comes to writing, we've talked about this before that information is valid i mean these are not just throwaway clues these are things that we need to kind of keep in the back of our heads of like okay these guys are getting smarter they're now becoming more influential detectives or more informed detectives and they're about to go do something crazy which puts yeah. them over at, at the surplus store one thing i want to point out is in that moment when they're doing all their detective work <laughs> nancy's mom just grabs the the knob and starts shimming it trying to open the door and this is just a great moment of levity. Jonathan looks at her and goes, your mom doesn't knock.
1: <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> yeah. such a great line to break the tension. I love it. And a great way to end that scene.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's fun because as they're as they're doing this detective work, Nancy's like looking through some books about animals. And, you know, she, of course, turns to a page on sharks and, you know, obviously Jaws and Amityville. All that was a huge influence as well for Hopper. So sharks, of course, are attracted to blood, and so she she makes that sort of correlation that maybe, I think she says that sharks are attracted to one, one part per million, I think. So, like, one drop of blood, you know, can be detected miles away by a shark. And so I think she's sort of assuming, because Barb had cut her hand in that episode, that perhaps... This creature is also attracted to blood in the same way, and as with right. the deer that it, it yeah. grabbed that was hit by a car. So yeah, it's all it all makes sense. They're doing, you know, they're they're using what they've learned in school biology, and right. and they're putting it all together. <laughs> and yeah, and it's 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 kind of interesting too because Nancy says she'll be down in a sec. Of course, they sneak out the window, but when her mom comes back upstairs later <laughs> to get her, when she doesn't come down. She picks the lock with like a hairpin, I think, from her yeah. head, and yeah. somehow she has lock-picking skills. Unless this is this is a very primitive, you know, uh, not true lock, but just like a little one of those little locks that you just kind of turn, not yeah, like an actual key lock. But still, she uh, she does break into her daughter's room and discovers that perhaps a boy uh, had been sleeping there with her that night he see she sees the sleeping bag on the floor so you know there's going to be another confrontation between nancy and her mom
0: <laughs> and i bet you would guess it was steve Harrington. You
1: know, steve well yeah I mean that's that's <laughs> yeah i don't think she even knows that he that nancy's hanging out with jonathan byers at this point no, that's not even so. on her radar
0: yeah well steve's definitely been taken out of the picture because of his stupidity um we find out <laughs> later as they're going to the surplus store they get all that great equipment and that line from the uh the vendor guy the the guy at the desk he's like what are you doing to do with all that kid and like monster hunting and yeah. just so matter of fact
1: <laughs> and he and i love his reactions. it's like hmm, okay you know yeah. like i feel like though if you work at a at an army navy surplus store you don't really have any right to question why people are buying that gear i mean it's like you sell that stuff you sell it because people want it. For whatever reason, if you're a prepper, if you're monster hunting, if you're just a regular hunter, whatever it is, it's there for a reason. And just, you know, let people... Buy. I guess because they're young, that's probably why he was questioning. But yeah, they were buying, like, bear traps. I mean, not a lot of people go hunting for bears. So it seems like they were probably being a little suspicious for their age in yeah. the items that they were purchasing. But he didn't He didn't seem to... He, his He's probably one of those guys like, your money will uh will cover it, then no problem. You know, you take it.
0: Yeah. And if only to set up the line later when they're putting the stuff in in his car. Yeah. <laughs> they're laughing about what she said. And Jonathan says, What's weirder? Hunting bears or hanging out with me? And she goes, Hanging out with you by far. And she kind of right. gives him that grin. And you're starting to get a little bit of uh, you know, kind of a cool relationship. I, and again, I think it I think it harkens back to that conversation they had what, like two days before where he really calls her out on her stuff. Yeah. And this is a great kind of expansion of their characters. It rounds them out a little bit more. I mean, we know more about Jonathan. We know more about her. But now they're getting to know that same kind of stuff that we know from a relational point of view. And that's so pivotal because this is that point when Steve Harrington turns into the uber douche that he is by spray painting Nancy is a slut on the marquee of all the right moves or something like that first of all how does he get up there and when does he do that i'm guessing it's at night but at the same time he's spray painting stuff in an alley still there yeah yeah like does he do like either he's doing it at night and we're just seeing this done a day later okay i can get that but it feels
1: like he's just done that and i'm like nobody in this town saw you do that Steve or cares. Really? Yeah, I yeah. know. It, so I guess it's morning, right? So they just left their mother's house, uh, Nancy's house and went straight to the army Navy store. So it's possible that before school or whatever time it was, maybe 6. AM, they got up there on a ladder and spray painted the marquee and then decided to hang around like that and spray paint in the alleyway around the corner as, as if that's not a suspicious move to get you in trouble. But uh, yeah, suspension of disbelief. That's what we have to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that I had an issue with was she sees the sign. She hits that call from the guy like, can't wait to see your movie. She looks at the marquee and then all these other people are looking at her. Like, is she the only Nancy in Hawkins? I mean, again, I get the small town thing. Like everybody's in your business. But if surely there's another girl in Hawkins named Nancy.
1: Well, it does. If you read it carefully, it says. You know it says all the right moves on the marquee and then and it writes starring nancy in quotes the slut wheeler so oh, that's her okay. full name so got it okay that makes more sense in that in that yeah they did specifically call her out and uh, i'm sure everyone knows who she is again it's not a huge town and everyone knows each other but yeah she's she's mortified obviously oh gosh
0: it's so bad so yeah. bad so yeah
1: they they run around the corner they do find steve and his like crew and uh you know nancy Dark. gets right in steve's face and slaps him I, and i think she really slapped him i think that i think was so a, too like not an actor slap <laughs> but i think he was told go for it yeah he looked like he took it you know
0: <laughs> he totally owned it man it was yeah. so good <laughs> and, and so just inspired i was like yeah nancy yeah but then he gets right back at her and he says why was he there? What's going on? And she couldn't answer because obviously she's not going to be like, well, I just got back from this weird place that a monster lives. I mean, she's not going to say that. And
1: even if she did, they would never believe her. So it would be almost worse for her to do that. So she just kind of says, well, no, it's not like that. It's not, it's not that type of situation. So she tries to defend herself, but then of course, Jonathan kind of catches up to her and, Mm -hmm. and runs down the alley and gets into a very intense fist fight with steve and it seems like one of those fights where these two have been itching to go at each other for perhaps years they could have been adversarial since they were in grade school for all we know and it's like this is a lot of built up tension here
0: yeah and i think it has to do a little bit in part with their families because right. steve makes that comment about his family is all that in a bag of chips and jonathan's family is trash so clearly there's a little bit of family history where you almost have like this rich family and this poor family that stand out in the town of Hawkins. And so he's making a real big fuss about the fact that, yeah, you come from bad seed, Jonathan, right. and just eggs him on and eggs him on and eggs him on. And then boom, Jonathan just goes nuts. What I like about this scene, Adam, is that it's not all good guy or all bad guy. I mean, they're both just wailing on each other. Like Jonathan gets a couple of good hits in and then Steve comes back and it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until the police get there. It's just crazy.
1: Yeah. And it's a really funny moment where uh, uh, this is at, at, towards the end of the fight when Jonathan is just pounding on. You know, he's on top of Steve Harrington, just pounding on his face. And clearly he's kind of he's got the upper hand at this point in the fight. He he's he's in control. And one of Steve's friends says to Jonathan, he's had enough, man. I said he's had enough. <laughs> And that is like straight out of the Karate Kid <laughs> with Johnny. I remember that.
0: Yeah. Well, he's talking to Johnny. He's talking to Johnny. Yeah, in this guy's exactly.
1: Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah.
0: These guys are not in uh, skeleton costumes, though. It's okay. No, no. <laughs> no mercy. And
1: technically, the Karate Kid came out a year after when this is supposed to have taken place, but I still think it's a little subtle nod by the Duffers to the Karate Kid, which is just another, you know, yeah. mid-80s classic that- that you know they're trying wherever they can I'm sure to put in these little these little moments for for the fans and for and for people like us who grew up watching who were essentially the same age or maybe a little younger than these kids that were were watching on screen
0: right and i this arc with Jonathan and Nancy comes to kind of a nice little conclusion for the episode with them in the police station Jonathan is being booked or something like that and nancy has this conversation i think it's with like the receptionist or one of the you know somebody in the police department yeah i
1: think it's that woman Flo. oh that's right it is yeah 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 hopper the one was that... talking to you in the first episode <laughs> and
0: hopper crap about yeah. not doing his job about the gnomes
1: <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> and she says something really really cool she says she refers to him as her boyfriend she's like he's not my boyfriend and she goes girl only love makes you that crazy sweetheart and that dang stupid and nancy kind of pauses a little bit and then the next scene is her going over to jonathan and saying hey everything okay and she's like yeah everything's fine and she gives a little half smile i thought that was really sweet you know it's really tender and it kind of you know they've experienced trauma together not only with crazy monster but also with this fight and so you kind of expect them to kind of become a couple of you know a chaotic couple (laughs) if you know a, a couple by chaos if you will and so that's that's fun. That's good stuff for me. I like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she brings some ice for his, you know, his head where uh, he got punched <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised that neither of them were more badly hurt. I mean, they were really yeah. going to town on each other. I so. mean. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm. surprised their faces aren't just swollen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and what cops
0: are that slow that you can't catch Steve and his gang? I mean, I, I guess know. they're they're not athletes. I don't think, right? They just. And
1: I w- and, no, and I will say about Steve. I think Steve was definitely in the wrong here, but I also think that he's at heart a good guy. I think his crew that he hangs out with, eggs him on. They don't obviously make him do anything, but I think they're a bad influence on him. I think sure. that he doesn't necessarily want to do some of the things he does but he sort of does them to save face amongst that crew and to sort of seem like he's the cool guy that everyone assumes he is or thinks he is yeah i i still am hopeful that steve will find a way to redeem himself
0: well and if you look at it from his perspective to be honest i mean everything that he perceived he legitimately has a right to be mad he's got this guy and this girl hanging out in her bedroom and assuming that he didn't just stay in that window, like right, <laughs> he has to wear his sunglasses at night if he does that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, the reaction, I, obviously we don't agree with, but the hurt that he feels, what we right. call the butt hurt that he feels is justified, at least in part from his perspective at the fact that she can't give a good explanation. And the thing is, I don't think he would accept any explanation because she's with another dude.
1: No matter, yeah. No matter what, it did not look good. Yeah. And, And there's really very little apart from, I was in a parallel dimension and a monster (laughs) almost ate me and Jonathan saved my life. And I, he he took me home and unless he was there, he's not going to believe that. So
0: (laughs) by the way, it's your fault. It started at your pool, dude.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It it took Barb. (laughs) So You're the bad guy here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about the arc for Hopper and for Joyce. It starts with um, this debriefing, at uh, at her house, um, he's talking about Hawkins Lab and what he saw there. You see all these pictures and these newspaper clippings that I think he's kind of printed out from the from the microfiche. Yes. <laughs> as he was looking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that she does a little detective work herself where he's talking about a picture that he saw on the wall, and she's like, what did it look like? And he, tells, he says, well, like any kid's drawing, it's stick figures and whatever. And she pulls out that drawing that we saw earlier from a flashback, and she goes, that's not Will because the drawing – that will does is more intricate it's a little bit right. more
1: he's clearly more talented and uh, for his age and and yeah it's, it's the one where he's he drew himself as a wizard and mm-hmm. his, his D party but yeah he's talking about the the picture that he discovered in what he described as a kid's room in the right. lab or or more like a prison cell he says because it had a smaller bed it had a, a, a drawing on the tree uh, sorry a drawing on <laughs> drawing on the tree it had drawing on the wall like you said so yeah these are all little signs that hopper is relaying to to joyce and joyce basically at this point convinces hopper that maybe he's been chasing the wrong kid maybe there's another kid not just will Byers, but also somebody else that's missing or or on the run and this is where it all kind of they go kind of further down that that rabbit hole, and I think it's the first time any character in the series has left Hawkins, Indiana. They go on a little bit of a road trip to find Terry Ives, who yes. is the woman that did yeah. all of the uh, the litigation with Doctor Brenner in the lab. You know, twelve years earlier, I believe. And yeah. yeah, that's a that's a really this is a good, very informative episode where we get a lot of backstory.
0: Absolutely. That, I think that's a great summary, Adam, of what this episode does. It's just a lot of fill in to answer a lot of questions. And I felt very proud that mm-hmm. I pointed out, hey, Terry Ives, could this be Eleven's mom? You did say that. I think the episode confirms it to a point, like it confirmed Will Byer's body, whatever. Okay. So I'm just going to say that to me, you have this great dichotomy of when they go visit her when they go visit terry they run into her sister her sister says why are you here and they're like hey i'm with the police department at hawkins can we talk to her and they're like and she's like no well you can but it won't do you any good and she's really sort of in a i won't call it a catatonic state but she's just kind of mute like she's just sort of watching you know an episode of uh, you know family feud or whatever we get all this backstory about how she had this kid And as it's being explained, this kid with special abilities, we flashback to all those moments with Elle. So I'm inclined to believe that Elle is her daughter, but at the same time, at the end of that, this is where great writing is just kind of on point. At the end of that conversation, her sister says, yeah, too bad that never happened because the baby was lost in the third trimester. Right. And they get so conspiracy theory in the scene. And I think Stranger Things as a series is really diving deep into that. I mean, we get into things like MK Ultra in this episode, how right. you know, pointing to things that really did happen, but then getting to those conversations where wait a minute, we're saying that L is her daughter, but her daughter died in the third trimester, so she never actually existed. So the question I have legitimately is: what's the truth? I feel like the show is telling us that L is her daughter. But I'm also feeling like the show is lying to me because it does that. (laughs) I can't trust it. Can't trust Steve Harrington. Can't trust anybody. Right. You're killing me, Stranger Things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they deliver it in such a way where you believe or you're led to believe through the editing and through the dialogue and the backstory that she gave birth to a daughter named Jane. Jane. Who had special abilities such as telepathy, telekinesis, and that's why what she called the big bad man stole Jane away. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: what's on the record, there's no birth certificate, there's nothing on record of her ever actually giving birth. So as far as Becky, her sister knows, and anyone else in the public sphere knows, the baby died in the third trimester. So yeah, it's easy for us to say, yep, that's it. She's Elle's mom. She Everything she said was true. But at the same time, we have to remember her mom, this is when her mom was in college. She was participating voluntarily in this, mm-hmm. this uh, program where she was paid hundreds of dollars to be submerged in sensory deprivation tanks and be given LSD and other drugs to see if they could expand their minds. And I, I find it interesting that her sister refers to her as people like Terry, were hired to do this so was terry this woman was she also previous to these experiments did she also exhibit some type of abilities that maybe Hmm. on a much smaller i mean maybe she could move a quarter on the table an inch with her mind or something right and so they were trying to tap into that to see if they could uh, expand upon those abilities through these experiments with these drugs so it makes sense that it could be her mom But at the same time, this could all be misdirection, right? This could all be just a way to trick us and we're going to find out the real truth down the road. But at the very least, at the very least, Hopper and Joyce get some satisfaction that they're on the right path, right? That there is more to what is going on at that lab than meets the eye, right? That there's more going on with Dr. Brenner, that there may be somebody or more than one child out there who's been experimented on, whether it's this woman's child or not, they feel like they're on the right path at this point. So I think no matter what the truth is in this scenario, it does push the narrative forward for Hopper and Joyce to kind of go to the next level of their investigation.
0: Sure. I I think you're right. The fact that we get the information that we do, what makes this scene work for me personally is the fact that we throw that doubt in the conversation. So her sister was very much informing about the fact that she was involved in this MK ultra stuff. And that could have contributed to the mental state of her thinking that she lost the baby or that these things happened. What we also know is that her sister wasn't around when she quote unquote lost the baby. So it's not like she's with her the whole time. Otherwise she'd be a, you know, a person of, of interest at that point. But I think that, The scene leaves us with that same kind of feeling that I think Joyce and Hopper have, which is okay. We don't have all the answers, but we're closer and we have purpose because in the car, Hopper makes that great comment. And I can't remember what it was specifically, but he basically says, I have something to fight for now. I have something to actually live for, which again, we don't have a lot of information about his daughter. We know that she passed away. Maybe she drowned. Something happened. And he he's finding this kind of redemptive journey that we've talked about before, And this conversation, while it didn't give them all the answers, it at least confirmed that, like you said, they're on a path that feels like it's the right one, even if it's not clear. And so for us as an audience, I think we're on that same path with them. We're like, yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. Because even worst case scenario, you don't find Will, you're going to find this other girl or this other person. But at the very least, you've got Hopper who's like, I've got an opportunity to really find a kid that might be lost. And and I think that's cool.
1: Or, and even if they, like you said, even if they don't find Will, at least they can find out what actually happened to him so they can solve the mystery and not have it be this sort of open-ended, no resolution, no closure situation where, you know, I feel horrible for anyone who's ever lost somebody uh, because they went missing. Because like, what a horrible thing, because you don't ever really know, right? You'll never have that closure that you have, as horrible as it is, with Hopper as he, he kind of even mentions this you know he he kind of wishes he could have a chance or, or hope to to do something to see his daughter again and Joyce has that she has like a glimmer of hope that maybe just maybe there's something more that they'll uncover and they'll get there eventually so yeah i i think everything you said is spot on it's they're definitely on a path and hopefully they'll because they're both working together now I think that's another interesting thing about this episode is it's all about kind of people pairing up and like in any situation, you know, the more minds you put together, the more likely you'll, you'll find a solution. You'll find an answer. And I think we have that with the two of them. We have that Mm -hmm. with, as we just discussed, Jonathan and Nancy um, who are essentially gearing up to set a trap and try to kill the Demogorgon. And then we also have that with the kids with, you know, Mike and, and Dustin. We haven't gotten into it, but that party is divided right now. You know, Elle ran off at the end of the last episode and, and so did uh, Lucas. And that's actually a funny thing because in Dungeons & Dragons, if you ever play it, one thing they say is never split the party and they even go into that in this episode how if you split the party you're doomed because you're always stronger in in a group and you can protect each other you can you know one character who has a strength in one area he might have uh, a weakness in another but another one you know the Remember the party will make that up right so you 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 join forces, and that's really I think what's happening here is everybody is kind of uh, they all they all have their sort of parallel journeys, but they're all doing it in teams and small teams,
0: and they're all tackling different components of this mystery right, so you have Jonathan and Nancy going after the monster, and yes, the fellowship or whatever we're calling the this this trio plus l yeah. <laughs> or this trio they are going after the Demogorgon too, but they're really looking for the gate. That's their mission. They're looking for
1: will more than anything. Nancy and Jonathan are looking for the Demogorgon and perhaps also Barb, right? As a secondary task. And don't forget Barb. She's important. Yeah, Don't forget Barb. (laughs) And, And of course, you know, as we said, Hopper and, Joyce are working together in a way to uncover the sort of government conspiracy that might be responsible for all of this. So yeah, you're right. They're all sort of attacking a different angle of the same bigger event that's taken place in in Hawkins.
0: And we know that, that as an audience, these are all connected pieces. We don't know how they're connected. When it came to the government piece of this in the episode, there wasn't a lot, but the part that was there that i really thought was amazing was the uh conversation with the fake social worker turned i guess fake <laughs>
1: yeah
0: um i don't know administrator of some kind going to mr clark's house and i'm like oh my gosh are you gonna kill mr clark don't kill mr clark yeah,
1: please i love mr clark
0: he's so good i don't <laughs> want him to die please don't tell me if he does or doesn't die I Just, but i'm just saying right yeah. now i don't want him to die but <laughs> you know how she gets that information i could love how excited he was to Tell her, oh, yeah, I've got some kids in mind that would love to be a part of this apparent like science uh, exhibition type thing. By the way, that trifle brochure is terrible. Like, that's terrible design.
1: (laughs) And it's clearly, it was a quick job. (laughs) No, she had to come up with a quick cover story, right? To get into Mr. Clark's good graces and to find out from him who that he teaches might be the less athletic types, as they say in a previous episode. And uh, this is obviously her way of sort of tracking down the kids that would potentially befriend somebody like 11. And so they can figure out where she went. So she's, yeah, she's there for a purpose. And thankfully she doesn't shoot Mr. Clark as she did with Benny in the burger joint. So that's, that was good. I'm glad Mr. Clark is, is around for at least one more episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
0: hope so. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the kids and obviously they're, they're a central part of this. And I I think that something that stood out to me in this episode was just Dustin's honesty. I think this was kind of a highlight reel for him, this episode in particular, you know, of course, Mike's upset that Elle's gone. I think he's upset that he overreacted maybe. I mean, he's just, he's just panicking. And so he tears down the, the fort that he builds for Elle. I mean, not because he hates her, but I think he's just, he's struggling. Dustin comes in later in another scene and i love that he stands up for himself he says i was being the only reasonable one <laughs> and this may give us an e but the way he's delivers them he says and you guys were being a bunch of assholes i mean that's yeah. really what and they were i mean they were both just being overly critical they were freaking out and he is really the voice of reason here and again he's leaning into that comic book character that yeah. i think he is becoming where he's like reminding Mike of the rules, you know, there is a pact that we don't know a lot about, but apparently there's, there's rules. And he says, you pushed first shake hands or be banished from the party. I yeah. mean, this is, as you mentioned, this is D and D language here. And I love that Mike doesn't balk at it. I think in any other TV show, you would have some guy be like, that's stupid. This isn't D and I mean, there's a belief that these guys have him, Lucas and Mike. They play D&D because they're friends and D&D is an extension of their friendship. And this makes a lot of sense because this is what I did when I was growing up. I didn't play D&D, but we would embody characters in that kind of play acting. Ours would be movie actors or characters on screen. Like you're a real Luke Skywalker. Come here, Luke. You know, we call each other by those names because we embody characteristics. And I think that what we see here is that childhood, childhood games, childhood fantasy, childhood Storytelling allows these kids to be able to articulate how they're feeling and how they're connected to each other. This is this goes beyond a bromance. This is more like a you know, keep it, you know, to kind of use a biblical reference. This is like Jonathan and David, they're like really best friends, like they're confidants, but they don't use that kind of language as 11 and 12 year olds. And so I think this whole sequence where Dustin is trying to reunite them, but to do it in a way that has rules that says look this is not just you need to say you're sorry but no you need to shake hands you drew first blood yeah and I thought that just a, it's a very creative way to express how closely they feel towards each other as friends I think this is a way that they can kind of skirt around that intimacy or at least kind of retranslate that intimacy in a way that makes sense to them
1: Yeah, and we find out some interesting things about that friendship as well, uh, that Mike and Lucas are essentially best friends, and Dustin knows that. Dustin feels that he's not quite on the same level with them because he, we learn, moved there to Hawkins when he was in fourth grade, so he doesn't have the same history that the other three apparently had in terms of their friendships. I mean, they could have been friends since they were in you know, preschool or kindergarten, whatever. So Dustin is kind of the, the new addition to the fellowship, if you will. And, and I think that's interesting because they have a whole back and forth about, oh, you can't have more than one best friend. And Mike's like, no, you, I, you're both my best friends. And Dustin doesn't quite buy that. But I think it's a really important conversation that they have because later in this episode, towards the very end, that friendship between... Mike and Dustin really comes into play when the bullies show up and essentially threaten to cut out Dustin's baby teeth with a knife unless Mike jumps off the cliff into the quarry and Mike's going to do it like because that's how much yeah. he cares about his friend Dustin. So he he really proves in, in a remarkable way that he is, is a best friend to Dustin, that he would do anything to, to prevent his friend from being hurt by these bullies and it's just an interesting thing because i think a lot of people talk about this idea of you can't have more than one best friend like you i was going to ask you if you
0: what do you think about that
1: yeah i i think when you're this age you can have a group of best friends i do think that i think you can have a crew of your best friends where it's hard to Differentiate, Because, again, they all may add something to your life, right? They all bring something different, unique to the table that makes your friendship as a group whole. And I think that's where kids have trouble saying one friend is my best friend or not. Maybe when you get older, it's easier to say, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I've known... This guy, you know, for forty years, and we've been friends ever since. I can call him my best friend, and I'm gonna he'll he'll be my best man in, in my wedding. Like, and it's a little easier, I think, with that much time to maybe call out a single person that you believe is your is your closest or your dearest or your longest friend that you've had. But at this age, I think I think that Mike's right. I think that you can have multiple best friends.
0: Yeah, I I think so too. And even in adulthood, I think that. Best friends, yes, it's very singular. I was actually talking to my son about this because he's gotten new friendships happening at his school, but he still considers his friend Cohen as his best friend. And I, I want to sit down with him and ask him, you know, why is he your best friend? <laughs> and to understand that, you know, what he considers a best friend is it someone that he shared, you know, Legos with? <laughs> is it something yeah. that there's a shared experience? When you listen to feel and film, both Aaron and I will talk about. You know, we'll always open up our show by saying. I'm, you know, I'm patch or I'm Aaron. And with me as always is my best friend and co-host, you know, Aaron or patch. And, And the fact is, I mean, we're, we're best friends because, you know, he confides in me and I confide in him and we have no issue just kind of sharing the crap in our lives or sharing the good things that are going on, but that doesn't omit room for others that can be significant. And I think that you're right at this point in the world that these kids are living in, they are a close knit family. And again, I think best friend helps define that, helps kind of define the significance of their relationship with each other. I think Dustin needed to hear that he was also Mike's best friend because it validates who he is. And honestly, Adam, in this episode, he should be a best friend. Like he should up, if he wasn't at best friend status, he needs to be because he is the one that really puts the pieces together. Yes, Mike is the one that makes that sacrifice or attempts to make that sacrifice, which I thought was just incredible like wow that that whole sequence when the when the camera looks over the cliff yeah my my legs got weak like that's just insane like i would not want to have a camera i would not want to be the cameraman in that scene because that's just scary
1: and i i was looking at it thinking to myself they didn't put poor mike there to shoot they had to have composited him in because that is such a precarious angle i mean yes if he just slipped or if the wind blew the wrong way, he would have fallen off. I, I'm sure that was a special effect because it, it that that was a real camera angle. I just can't imagine they would put any actor in that position. I'm hoping they didn't
0: because, you know, yeah. we need Mike.
1: And I think we learn earlier in the series i think it's hopper who says something to one of his deputies like that like no one ever really survived jumping into the quarry like they would completely die if they
0: (laughs) yeah it's like concrete once you if you hit it from that distance it'd be like hitting concrete yeah
1: so i think people the rumor is that some people have done it you know in the town that people they'll do it on a dare but i don't think anyone actually ever has so mike might think he'll survive like it'll be painful but he'll survive even though in reality the physics of it <laughs> say that he his body would uh, would not survive that that impact. Yeah.
0: Well and watching that scene play out, it it's interesting to see that Mike's willing to sacrifice, but so is Dustin. I mean, Dustin makes a comment, he says, Look, let them take my teeth out. I'm fine with that. Yeah. So I think both of them are really sort of not they're not jockeying for for status. I mean, they really do care about one another, and I think they're both willing to make a sacrifice for one another for because the they other, understand yeah. the importance of it.
1: And the other bully, uh, not the main bully, not the bully holding the knife. He actually, at one point, backs off as Mike approaches the edge. It's like, oh, come on. You know, we're, we're not really doing this, are we? You know, because he he realizes this isn't this is not going to end well. <laughs> and right. uh, but the other the kid with the knife, man, he was just like he didn't care. He was a, yeah. that's a bad kid.
0: Well, it, it reminded me a lot of the um, this one of the scenes in the TV movie It, where Henry Bowers is chasing one of the kids or a couple of the kids through the woods. I think, right, yeah. You know, if, if there's a Karate Kid reference, then I think that there's another yeah, it reference here. I'm I gonna, think so, yeah. I, and I don't think there's any dialogue per se that reminded me of, it, but the way in which, like Henry Bowers had a knife, and he was willing to just cut the, you know, what called the you know, fat kid in the, yeah, in the TV yeah. movie, but that whole sequence. It just kind of amplified this bully of having, you know, gone off the rails in terms of his mind. Like he's willing again, I think it's a lot like Steve. We I think we joked about the fact that he and Steve need to hang out, but I think they both have the same kind of mentality where they feel wronged and they're just reacting in a way that's just completely irrational. Yeah. So I think that whole thing with Mike and what he did really sort of sobered them up. Well, that combined with Elle doing her thing. <laughs> which right so it's pretty fantastic and dustin's response like yeah we got a superhero <laughs> yeah. and she's going to kill you
1: breaks the the bully's arm which is yes yeah she pushes the other one back with her mind she actually she does three things first which i'm sure is the most difficult kind of like yoda lifting luke skywalker's x-wing out of the swamp and and the empire strikes back l basically prevents mike from falling so she she's holding him mid-air and then lifts him up over all the kids and like drops him back on the ground and then pushes one of the bullies down and breaks the other one's arm and clearly that's a lot for her because she looked spent more than usual after that yeah
0: well and yeah, I couldn't tell if that was like new blood coming out of her ears or her nose, because she's been through, I mean, she's been through a
1: lot yeah, in this
0: whole yeah. episode from the moment that, that she ran away to, uh, to the moment that we, we see her come up to the top of the, right. The cliff.
1: Yeah. She's basically on her own, this whole episode up until mm-hmm. this sort of where they reunite at the end here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And she's, you know, we get the flashbacks as well. She's walking through the woods. She sees her reflection, She tries to put the wig on. And I think that's sort of symbolic when she throws it off. She's like, This isn't me. I'm not this person. And it flashes back to her conversation with Papa, uh, Brenner, who says, Today we make contact. And this was the light bulb moment for me, Adam. Yeah. Because I started to kind of realize by the time we get to this point in the episode, okay, I now know, I think, what's happening here. And so my summary statements are that, you know, Brenner's team was using L to project Russian intelligence somewhere in that they discovered this monster. Now they want to use L to contact the monster. And that's what today we make contact. And my prediction is that she is what the monster is after, or that the monster is now aware of the world outside the upside down. And that's kind of where we're left by the end of the episode. So that's kind of my, my mid conversation predictions or thoughts. Maybe I'm onto something. Obviously we'll find out when we finish. Cause I'm going to hit play on episode seven yeah, to yeah. see my suspicions confirmed. You know, he gives her a plant. I don't know if that's significant. Uh, maybe it's just a little trinket uh, that yeah, never I, makes a reappearance. But I wonder what that was about.
1: I think it was just a gesture, like a gift. Like, here's a little something, you know, beautiful for you to have in your room. I mean, if you look at her room, there's nothing other than her bed and, like, I think a little desk and her drawing on the wall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. It's maybe just a little something green, you know, to decorate her room or something living that she can care for. I don't know. But it's, I think, meant for tremendous, almost like an olive branch. Like, here's a little something. Now, today is okay. a very special day, Elle. Gotcha. Uh, today, we make history. Today, <laughs> we make contact. And she seems like ready to, ready to go, you know, happy, you know, pretty happy, as happy as she can be under the circumstances and 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 as far as we know this is her whole life right we don't know if she's ever experienced anything if we're led to believe that she was taken as a baby by brenner from terry ives then this she may have lived her first 11 or 12 years in this laboratory or in other labs and this and this one so whether she was around other children with abilities we don't really know but it is interesting that like you said when she goes into this sort of black space when she's in when she's in the dep- deprivation tank and she sees the back of the monster she kind of slowly walks over to it and she reaches out to touch it and She does touch it. And that's when it like spins around. And Brenner says, don't worry. It can't hurt you from here. You know, when you're in that space, you're because you're here in our physical plane. You can't. It's just your mind. But clearly she touched it. Right. And it was aware of her. And then she screams louder than she's ever screamed before. And this essentially, we're led to believe, creates it like rips a hole in our dimension, perhaps in that laboratory that might perhaps connect to the demogorgons
0: so so that was a question i had so we know that she creates vibration a la like rogue
1: right right (laughs) all these x-men references are great
0: thanks dustin appreciate that (laughs) (laughs) but uh i thought when the wall cracked behind the deprivation tank and people were freaking out and it was like chaos i thought that it was just the wall cracking was that an indication that the dimension opened up.
1: I think that was the implication because she does think that she caused she says I'm the monster I caused this later in the episode. So I think she's under the impression and at least, and we as the omniscient viewers up until this point are perhaps led to believe that maybe accidentally this encounter she had with the demogorgon caused the initial tear in the fabric of, of our reality to, to open up with the upside down. And that what, again, we don't know what happened. It cuts then, right? So we never really see directly what happens after. We don't see the, that kind of organic mass start to form or anything. We just see kind of the wall kind of crack and explode a little bit and glass shatters and things break. And so it, I was led to believe that perhaps she, triggered something through both the fact that she was in communication with the Demogorgon, but also through her like extreme emotional fear that she was exhibiting at that moment. Right. And perhaps the deprivation tank was amplifying that her, her sort of psychic powers at that point and causing a rift to occur.
0: Yeah, I think, and that, that kind of led to my, my thought regarding the monster being aware of this world that exists beyond its, it's, own existence right um maybe there's something to the fact that because she's made physical contact with this monster now this monster has this incredible awareness oh my gosh there is this world that i have no idea I mean, this is pandora's box right in they this moment yeah yeah and so i thought that may have been what she was referring to that because i made contact with this monster because i, I physically touched it it now is aware and i've let it out and you know in a sense i am the monster because. I've created this or I've created this opportunity. And I love that, I love that, um, that Mike defends her. He says, No, no, you didn't. I mean, you saved me. Yeah. And it leads to that great kind of shot at the end where, or I say at the end, near the end of the episode where Dustin does this kind of like, like eagle. Hug over them. Yeah, and he does. It's kind of awkward, but it's kind of cool at the same time. Kind of wants
1: to be, he doesn't want to be left out. You know, he kind of cradles yeah, them a like, little I, bit. I, I'm best friend too. Remember
0: Mike? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the last shot, which is really interesting because the last shot is, of course, the government. You know, I put yeah. that in air quotes, uh, doing its thing. We find out through Lucas's arc. We haven't talked about him, but he goes on his own little adventure because he either, I don't know if he handshakes or if he refuses to handshake because he wants to forget I think the he weirdo refuses. Yeah. I think yeah. he
1: decides to go out on his own to find will and he, you know, right. he packs all his, his gear that I think was his father's from Vietnam. <laughs> all and, that stuff that he was taking yeah. before. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he, yeah, he got, he kind of goes into like mission mode, like on his own solo. And I think uh, he does some cool things. Like he tapes his walkie talkie and his, compass to his handlebars so yeah that was great yeah
0: <laughs> i mean he, he's ready to roll man he's yeah. ready to roll uh, you know the the conversation that he has with dustin and mike before he takes off is so much fun this is just good dialogue i love that uh dustin says accident or not it was pretty cool when when she threw him like she yeah. threw you with her mind and yeah. and then and then he makes a comment about going after the demogorgon and mike says essentially fighting the demogorgon with the wrist rocket is like R2D2 fighting Darth Vader what a great <laughs> yeah. reference to this I was like yeah it really is true but it doesn't phase him it doesn't deter him and through his adventure we find that you know he follows the compass to Hawkins lab he gets up in that tree and we see uh we see scientists which we know about we see military people which we've seen before and then we see power and light vans which yeah. we knew that They were a part of it and we see them pop up here and there, but now he's realizing, oh my gosh, these, these guys are hiding in plain sight. And that's kind of where the, where the episode finishes up. It's with these guys getting this arsenal together and all the vehicles are now probably converging on the Wheeler house because that's where Mike and Dustin and L are. At this point, I think Lucas is still in a tree, <laughs> so hopefully yeah, he makes I mean, his way back. And he
1: definitely knows there's something up, because if you remember, when he leaves to go on this this little solo quest on his bike, he sees a van, and, and like a weird guy kind of gets out and kind of waves to him, and Lucas waves back, kind of like, oh, hi, yeah, and now he sees those same vans parked all inside the lab, so he knows he's putting two and two together, he's got to get back and warn his friends, because he knows they're on to them at this point.
0: Yeah, we're we're in A confrontation
1: is is about to occur. It is, yeah. Unless they can get out in time, right? Unless they can sneak out before that caravan of of vehicles reaches the Wheeler house.
0: Well, I think Stranger Things has taught us that adults can be pretty stupid, because apparently Nancy's mom didn't realize that she and Jonathan took off, you know, just throw your music up pretty loud and you're good to go. Right. Uh, I don't know how long it was between when she said it's time to come down for pancakes and when she had to go back up there. But, you know, if, if her, <laughs> if her detective work is any kind of indication of uh, what these guys are capable of, maybe we're, maybe we're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So a couple of highlights for me before we finish up. Um, I think that, uh, Watching Elle get from point A to point B, she goes to the grocery store. I love that she gets the uh, he steals Eggo waffles because you know that's what she knows. She loves the Eggos. I also paused it because I wanted to see what other products were in the uh, in the freezer section. I got Hungry Man, Aunt Jemima, uh, microwave pancakes from her uh, Swanson, um, and then also Eggo has home style and blueberry waffles. So she just yeah. grabbed the home style. She wasn't getting variety. She was like, yeah, I, think I that's recognize what, this. Yeah,
1: that's what she knows. That's what the yeah. wheelers had. And so yeah. she went with what she knows. That's okay. I, yeah, watching the scenes, I just always, it amazes me how they can get so many time correct or period accurate grocery store items. You know, it's just, they look authentic on the shelves and in the freezer. Yeah. It's just how much work for such a short scene. It's so yeah. much work for the production designing team to kind of collect whether they recreate those boxes or whether they find new old stock somewhere in a warehouse <laughs> of just boxes and they put them in, you know, on the shelves. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing to me.
0: Yeah. The section for ice cream behind the dude that she calls mouth breather. That was pretty epic. That's a, yeah. that's a big section of ice cream. That's like, that's committed to having your, your desserts in that big of a big of an aisle there. But uh, I also love the way that she closes the automatic doors, where she just closes them really quickly and then shatters the glass. I'm like, wow, yeah, don't mess with L. I also noticed that uh, you know Brenner's accent. He was talking a little bit more, and I'm I'm listening with with both ears <laughs> in this episode of like,
1: where is that where coming is that from? from? What, yeah. Where is
0: it? <laughs> I'm hoping we get some answers. But I just I'm honed in, and I'm like, this is not Matthew Modine's normal voice. No, and <laughs> so... it's not like
1: it doesn't seem like some. It's not a European accent or a British accent or a Canadian accent. It's not, or even like a a regional accent, a U.S. accent. I can't pinpoint what it is, but it's very specific. And it, it, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, it adds to the mystery of his backstory, right? And where where he's from and what mm-hmm. he's done prior to all of these experiments. Yeah, it, it's a solid episode, and and really. I keep saying this, but it really kind of kicks off the final two episodes. We get, we're we're going to go right into, I think the finale, if you will, you know, the two hour finale is, is at hand and it's all going to kind of, I think, I think we're going to see all the characters essentially come together, right? All these, these sort of splintered factions are, are going to join forces if you will to find some type of resolution and it's gonna be good. That's all I can say.
0: <laughs> well, I am I am definitely looking forward to that. Um, just a little pro tip: I'm gonna throw this out to Mike. When you're gonna throw a rock at someone, please aim better. That was a terrible rock throw. And I, I I can't I can't disagree with the guy who says, "Really, you're gonna that's terrible aim." Like he he completely whiffed on that. I mean, he wasn't even close to that guy. I was it like, was a
1: bad throw, no question. Mike, yeah. Just remember these are. <laughs> As the principal, I think said, "These are the non-athletic types." So, you know, that's thank you for that reminder, Adam. That they're I in character, <laughs> and they were, they had also been running quite a while. Think about they, it. they true. were in the woods. True, they left their bikes unfortunately, which they did linger on that shot. So, I was kind of wondering why they lingered on the fact that the bikes were left in the woods. I hope that there is a reason for that, but yes, they are without their trusty bikes now, uh, which they've been using throughout the series thus far i
0: will say this i don't think mike could have had the cool setup like uh like lucas did because his bike was the what was it the banana banana bar oh uh, right right banana handle handlebar i don't know what that's called but he could not have set his his bike up the way lucas did so no. kudos to lucas for having a bike that could do that that's cool yeah well that's going to do it for us on this edition of aos um adam i know you've mentioned the what I call the two part, what you're calling the two part finale, but what's the first part called that we're going to cover next?
1: Well, and it's not officially a two parter, but yeah, it just, it (laughs) it feels like the next two episodes are going to be very much connected in wrapping everything up. Uh, This is chapter seven of eight chapters and it's entitled the bathtub uh, again, directed by the Duffer brothers who also did this episode. I don't know if we mentioned that, but the bathtub in the past, L refers to the deprivation tank as the bath, I think. Uh, So my guess is there will be some, perhaps we're going to learn more about what that's all about, how that works and maybe what role that played in what we were just discussing in terms of opening up this gate. If, if that's indeed what she did by being in the bath. So yeah, it'll be uh, interesting to see yep where it all goes
0: and i'm going to find out here in about two minutes so i might have to as well it's uh it's too tempting <laughs> it's okay. So i'm wide awake man i can do this and then i, I say that and i fall asleep because <laughs> i won't, get so amped up for these episodes you won't fall I'm asleep
1: like, with this episode
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i i might because the, i always have to turn my my sound down because our living room is adjacent to, to our bedroom and so i'm i'm trying to find a way that i can plug my headphones into my phone or something and cast the audio because it's just i need this i need the surround of this, yeah so.
1: that's that's how i have it set up i have i've had them for years but i have these uh these wireless headphones they plug there's a little thing that plugs into the tv and it sends a signal to my uh to my headphones so it's a nice little feature for late night tv movie viewing uh, when you have uh, young children, and uh, especially if it's like a scary show, you don't want, yeah. you know, growling monsters to wake up your, your eight or nine year old.
0: <laughs> if anything's going to wake them up, it shouldn't be that. It should be something
1: no. else, right? <laughs> exactly.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation as usual. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.